Today does begin a month-long emphasis on missions. I'm trusting that in addition to learning and growing and understanding of God's heart, I'm trusting that a lot of our guests, those who've been recently attending, will get a really good snapshot of what really drives First Family, a real this part of our DNA. been looking forward to opening this month with a special message about missions. We're taking a break from First Peter for about four weeks and focusing on God's heart. We're doing that a number of ways, not only in our preaching. We'll have some guest speakers with us who help us do that. We've got some events planned. You've heard about those tonight, tomorrow, and so forth. Um, trips next summer to different places. Um, all of that is designed to help us lean in closer, get a better view of God's heart, of His perspective, of His plan. I think that really answers the why question. You know, why go month? Why an emphasis on global outreach? Why such an intensive focus? Well, here's the answer in a nutshell. Here's God's heart in a nutshell. Here's His eternal passion and purpose. His end game has always been and still is His gospel to all peoples and His family with all peoples. And you can say this in different ways and different churches do. We've said it in different ways at times, such as make disciples who make disciples, preach the gospel to every creature, there's different ways it's been said and written. Nothing wrong with that. But we didn't think of this. This is the overall, overarching meta-narrative of Scripture. This is what God is up to. And this is really what drives First Family. It's what drives us to spend 30 days focusing on global outreach, on God's heart of getting His gospel to all people so that His family is filled with all peoples. In fact, let me just take a moment and, and give you the promise that God made at the very beginning concerning this to show you this is God's idea from the very beginning. This is what he told Abraham, Genesis 12. Notice just the, fast, excuse me, the last phrase where he says that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Speaking of Christ the Messiah coming through the seed, the line of Abraham, that would be the blessing. Christ is the blessing through whom all peoples are blessed. The word there is ethnicities or families. Every single one of them is blessed through Jesus. This is God's intention and His promise. And I'll assure you that He, he will do it. When the Bible closes in Revelation 7, here's how John describes the culmination of of what Genesis predicted and promised. Here's Revelation 7, 9. Again, I'll just pick out one phrase and show you. You can read the verse on your own. John said this, There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. How many of those? Say it with me. Every. And God said in Genesis through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. No wonder John Stott would say, we must be global Christians. 
with a global vision because our God is a global God and His gospel is global, make no mistake, First Family, this is what God is about and this is thereby what we are about. His gospel to all peoples and His family with all peoples. Now you've seen that from the biblical perspective just briefly by way of introduction. You've seen the promise made, the promise will be kept, biblical proof. Can I share with you some anecdotal proof in the Scriptures just to show you pictures of God doing exactly this? I'd mentioned to you Rahab, Joshua, chapter, I think it's 2. She's a Canaanite woman living in Jericho, but is grafted into the family of God. All peoples. I think about Ruth, a Moabitess woman, grafted in, brought in as a foreigner into the family. I think about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, a Persian king, on the outside, brought into the inside through the gospel, the news of Christ, and worshiped God. You can read Daniel 4 to get the story there. I think about Cornelius in Acts 10, what many consider to be the the very first Gentile convert of the New Testament. He was a military officer. Acts 10, Cornelius trusts Christ. And if you're looking for one even closer to home, just look in the mirror if you're not a Jew, right? And you'll see an outsider who's made an insider, a foreigner who became part of the family. You see, what you're looking at in the mirror if you're not a Jew is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. That all the way in North America... The gospel has come and reached. That's what Acts 1.8 says. Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You're the uttermost parts. You know that, right? Aren't you glad that God has promised and is keeping His promise and will one day fulfill His promise to get His gospel to all peoples so that His family is filled with all peoples? This is what God is about. There's one more anecdote I want to share with you, though, that I want to focus on this week, and then in a couple weeks I'll share more with you from this book. And that's the picture of Nineveh, or the Ninevites. What a story of God's love for all people and peoples. Now, Nineveh was a capital in the Assyrian Empire. If you're wondering who the Assyrians were, just hear this word. They were Israel's arch enemy. In fact, they would be the very people who would eventually overthrow the ten northern tribes and disperse them, early 700s B.C. These were not Israel's friends. And so what's humanly ironic to us, but divinely important to God, is that the Assyrians hear the message of forgiveness and of grace and of the need to repent. And so God calls one of His prophets, a man named Jonah, to go tell the Assyrians that He loves all people and all peoples. Jonah did not like that idea. Now, if you want to read the full story, it's Jonah 1 through 3. I want to ask you to turn to Jonah 4 and just watch the conclusion because I think the conclusion will help us see this heart of God, this end game of God, this promise being kept yet again that his end game has always been and still is his gospel to all peoples and his family with 
all peoples. Let's watch this truth unfurl in the conclusion of the Old Testament book of Jonah. You're at chapter 4 now. You may want to use your journals as well. It's page 22. Write down the take-home truth and some observations. I'll give you three accompanying observations to this take-home truth. The first two are in the first three verses. Then we'll take, tackle the last eight and make one. So follow with me this morning as we understand more and more about God's heart to get His gospel to all people and His family filled with all peoples. Verses 1 through 3 of Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Your first question should be, what does it refer to? Again, it's Jonah 1 through 3, and it's God's intention to bring the message of repentance and judgment, all of that together, to the Ninevites. That's what displeased Jonah, because he knew that if he took that message, God would relent of judgment and show mercy upon their repentance. And Jonah didn't want that. Remember, these were his enemies. More than rivals, they were his competitors and overthrowers in one sense. They were the ones who were giving Israel fits during the reign of King Hezekiah. A contemporary would be the prophet Elisha. And so Assyria was always breathing down the neck of Israel. It's to these people that God said, Jonah, go preach repentance. Jonah knew that if he did and they repented, God would relent and save them. So Jonah did this, then God did that, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And so he prayed to the Lord, verse 2, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is what I made haste, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And relenting from disaster, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. An interesting prayer here. I think there are eight personal pronouns referring to Jonah. I would say to you, Jonah's pretty self-consumed here. With his way, his game plan, his preferences, to the point that he's just frustrated with God, and he just soon dies. Now, this says a couple of things to me. First of all, it says this. Here's observation one. Just, just walk with me through this. That getting the gospel to all peoples is humanly hard. Now, when I say that to you, your first thought is probably regarding logistics or physical items. And I wouldn't say that's incorrect, but I would challenge you with this. It's probably incomplete. And I base that in the text we're in. For instance, it was logistically and physically hard for Jonah to get the gospel to the Ninevites. They were dangerous. They were an enemy. There was a distance. All those things are true, but I don't think that's Jonah's biggest struggle. His biggest struggle is not that it was physically or logistically difficult. Jonah had spiritual arrogance. Jonah had national pride. Jonah was a racist he had ethnic um, prejudice. And he was thinking, why should I go to those people with your message? Because if I do and they repent, you'll forgive them. And I really don't want them forgiven. You may have a hard time hearing that. But this is really the, the thread of Jonah's um, issues. He found it humanly hard 
ethnically, emotionally, spiritually. He found it very hard to be the instrument of saving news to people that he wished wouldn't be saved. For all he cared, they could go to hell. That's Jonah's raw reality. And this is why he was angry. In all pastoral and textual transparency, Jonah thinking God had done an evil thing. The most literal translation of verse 1 of chapter 4 is this. Listen very carefully. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. That's kind of hard to hear and read. So this is a good translation. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. But the Hebrew bears out to us, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. He had an incredible uh, sense that, God, you've done something out of line here. He was accusing God. This is a vulnerable moment for Jonah. He's admitting to finding fault with God, that it's humanly hard to witness to people that he'd rather God go to war with. He's confessing how difficult it is to evangelize among a people that he thinks God should have exterminated. This is what's in the mind of Jonah. Now, there's a lot to this that we really can't unpack here just today because of time. It's really more so in the first three chapters. So I'd encourage your small group, your family, with your kids around the table, just take some time to read through Jonah during this month. You'll find that Jonah is finding it humanly hard to get the gospel all peoples. But my safe assumption is this, that he's not the only one in this dilemma. Could somebody say amen? I think at times we share and wrestle with this same predicament, that in certain areas and at certain times we find our anger towards the sin and sinner to push out any love for them. Any sense that, that God not only could save them, but that God would want to save them? We find it humanly hard to hold two seemingly contradictory emotions and responses. Our hatred for their sin, and yet our responsibility, might I say even privilege, to share the news of God's forgiveness for their sin. And as humans, balancing those seems very difficult. I struggle with this. Now, I'd love to unpack more of my own struggle with this, specifically with all of you. Time will not allow that, but I will do that Tuesday on the Extra Point podcast. And we're going to spend several Tuesdays talking about things related to how humanly hard it is to get the gospel to all peoples. We'll start this Tuesday. Please listen in. I'll share with you my own dilemma and the specific type of sin and persons that I know God wants me to share the gospel with, but sometimes I find myself thinking more like Jonah than God. And I don't think I'm the only one in that boat rowing that ship that's bound to sink, right? If you're in that boat, that's a sinking ship instead. We need to get out of our way of thinking, and we should get into God's way of thinking. And what is that way of thinking? It's described in these three verses, and Jonah knew God thought this way, even though he was aware he wasn't thinking this way. He knew his heart wasn't like God's heart. This is why he was angry. Look how well Jonah knew God's heart, which is really our second observation. 
God's heart is that he loves all people and peoples. And Jonah knew this. I love the four traits mentioned here. And then the one result. Thinking of this second observation, look what Jonah here says. He says, God, I knew that you, I, I know that you are a gracious God. You're merciful, you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love. And because you are those four things, when someone repents, you'll relent from disaster. You will not judge, you'll show mercy. Jonah knew this. You find it soothing and helpful and rejoicing. Jonah found it to be a source of anger when it was exhibited toward other people that he didn't like. Think about these words. God is gracious, means he gives us what we don't deserve. God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He did this to the Ninevites. He's slow to anger or long-fused or long-suffering. When Jonah came to preach repentance, he did have, they had 40 days. And then he says that God is abounding in steadfast love. This is the most delightful word in this description to me. You know why? This is the word really exclusive to Israel. It describes God's character, yes, but it's used primarily to describe God's character in relation to his covenant people. It means unrelenting love. It means covenant-keeping um, commitment. And he promised this type of love to them in spite of their disobedience, waywardness, and constant strain. God would always remind them of his steadfast love, of his covenant love, of his covenant-keeping love. And Jonah here is saying, I know that you're that kind of God and that if these folks repent, you're going to give them the same kind of love that you gave us. In other words, you're going to let an outsider be on the inside. You're going to take a foreigner and make him a family. And I'm not sure I'm good with that. This is Jonah's heartbeat because he knows God loves all people and peoples. Yes, in Jonah's world, even the Assyrians, the dangerous, violent enemies of Israel, you want me to preach repentance to them? And then watch you do what only you can do because you're gracious and merciful and long-suffering and loving, you'll forgive them. And Jonah's thinking, I'm not sure I want you to forgive them. Now, there is a deeper distinction here that I want you to notice. In this uh, description of God's character towards the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Notice this distinction that God loves people, yes, but there's a sense in the text in which we see that God loves peoples. We could use the word people groups. We could use the word, I like this word better, ethnicities. In other words, God loves both, watch this now, people, he loves all people, and he loves all kinds of a people. You sang this as a kid, remember? Red or yellow, black or white. Say it with me. They are precious. Jonah is bearing this out, that God loves people, but he loves all kinds of people. And I might add, 
Because God loves people and all kinds of people, God saves people and he saves all kinds of people. Kinds there being ethnicities. This is why what he promised Abraham in Genesis 12, he will bring to fruition in Revelation 7. And there will be from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue at least one believer around the throne. Why? Because God loves people and all kinds of people. Now, if you extrapolate this out, your heart begins to pound faster. Your soul starts wanting to sing because you realize, okay, then God loves Africans and he loves all Africans. God loves Indians and he loves all Indians. God loves Europeans and he loves all all Europeans. God loves Asians and he loves all Asians and so forth and so forth and so forth. Are you tracking with me? Let's shout this from the rooftops as long as we have a voice. God loves all people and peoples. And he loved those individuals in Nineveh and he loved Assyrians. You see, church, there's not an individual or ethnicity outside the love or reach of God. The self-reckless like the Ninevites or the self-righteous like Jonah. No one is out of God's reach. The religious, the wicked, the light, the dark, the near, the far, the Jew, the Gentile. Here's what John would say about this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son, and whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Amen, church. Hallelujah. God loves all peoples and all kinds of people, the world. John would further write in his smaller epistle later to those believers, he would say this, Jesus died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And world there means not only every person. He really means they are all peoples, all different kinds of persons, different ethnicities. Church, there's no people anywhere in the whole world at any time that hasn't been and isn't loved by God. He's gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love. No people anywhere that won't be and can't be forgiven when they repent and believe in the gospel that Jesus died and rose again as their sacrifice and substitute. Hallelujah for the deep, wide, ever-reaching, soul-regenerating, heart-transplanting, people-saving love of God. We're, we're only peeling back the topsoil on this subject, the love of God. This is a beautiful picture of God's love for people and peoples. And this is what Jonah knew. It's also what Charles Gabriel knew. Who, by the way, back in the late 1800s was raised on an Iowa farm. And in 1905, he wrote these words as he was astounded as well by the love of God. 
He wrote, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. You know the old hymn, don't you? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my soul shall ever be. Can you sing it with me? How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I hope the love of God leaves you speechless most days. You bask in it and wonder about it and meditate upon it. It's this love that I think is the focal point of the final eight verses. In one sense, the final eight verses, it's God illustrating for Jonah just how much he loves Nineveh. And watch this, watch my wording here. Just how much right he has to love Nineveh. In fact, the final eight verses are really just God asking Jonah three questions and making one statement. But it's all about how he's not wrong. He has not committed evil to love the Ninevites. He's actually done what is right and good and in keeping with his character. And this is the final observation that in these eight verses, Really, God is orchestrating every single circumstance to move Jonah's heart from his selfish kind of heart to God's selfless kind of heart. He's moving Jonah from his own agenda to, to his agenda, to God's agenda. This is what the final eight verses do, showing us that God orchestrates all things to move our heart to his heart for all people. In fact, let's read this and just kind of follow along with me as we see Jonah kind of under the gun now. Verse three, 4 begins, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? That's the first question. We don't know that Jonah responded yet. Instead, he went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. My sense of that verse is that he was maybe hoping that even though they repented and that God's character would then... Uh, he would relent of the disaster and show mercy that maybe Jonah's thinking, well, maybe somewhere they'll just kind of be shown to be faking it. Maybe God will judge them anyway. Or, I get the sense that he's just hoping for a change. Like, we'll just see if this holds true. So he's watching the city. And now to, to really make sure Jonah doesn't miss the point, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I guess his booth wasn't working very well, right? Which is a, another whole sermon in that we can't do anything to save ourselves. Jonah couldn't save himself in the sea. God brought a fish. Jonah couldn't save himself over this discomfort and God brought a plant. We do nothing to save ourselves. And the church said, it's always all God. So God brings in a plant. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I think that's my favorite verse in this whole book. Because I, I can resonate with its conviction so well. Can you like, it's just like this verse highlights like this is the shallow prophet that's preaching repentance. I mean, 
He is excited for a plant, and he hates the people. Like, ah, oh, this guy's got issues. Man, so I, I feel that way sometimes. Like, I, I, when my heart's exposed and the Lord's Spirit convicts, and, you know, then the real me sometimes is seen. Like, man, I, I got some issues, right? You ever felt that way? This is just a beautiful verse. Jonah is so glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. That attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. All this is happening in a day. So it's supernatural. This isn't missed by Jonah. He's not just watching something over months like, I guess it's just natural. This is all within a, a 24 to 36 hour period. So he's aware God's doing something in his midst. Well, he was faint, and so he asked again, end of verse 8, it's better for me to die than to live. He's still pretty consumed with his own way, isn't he? But God said to Jonah, here's the second question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah's still stubborn and resolute, says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Here's the Lord's statement, the only statement in this chapter. The Lord said, you Pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Here's the third question. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? I'll expand more on that verse in a future edition of the podcast. Just know this. Here God is saying, Jonah, you felt bad for something you had nothing to do with. You didn't make the plant, and, and you felt bad for it. You were glad for it. And he said, you're mad at me. You're angry with me for showing compassion to, to people I made. In other words, Jonah, I've not done an evil. I have every right to show compassion and be pitiful. I'm their creator. We don't know how the book, well, I should say, we don't know how Jonah and the Lord resolved all this. We don't. This is a classic cliffhanger, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's great. I often wonder, like, man, I wonder what happened next. If, if it, you know, Jonah is not really known for quick repentance. I don't know what happened next, right? Who knows? But this question is a beautifully lingering one in our minds as the book ends. Like, like, God has every right. God has every right to show compassion and mercy and pity on people and all kinds of people, even if they're not like you. He made them. He's their creator. And it's his desire, it's his end game that, that people from every kind of peoples be around his throne. That's why his heart is to get his gospel to all people so that his family is filled with all peoples. This is the mindset Jonah was missing. His heart was far from God's. It was fragmented. And so what did God do to bring Jonah to the realization that, that he needed a heart realignment? Well, the text says he orchestrated a plant, a worm, and a wind. Now, before you minimize these three things, I would remind you that in the text, the same word is used for the plant, 
the worm and the wind that is used for the great fish. We love the story of Jonah and the well, but you ever heard the story of Jonah and the plant? It doesn't exist, does it? The truth is, all of these were equally used by God. You ever heard of Jonah and the scorching east wind? I haven't either. We should have four stories about Jonah. Jonah and the fish, Jonah and the plant, Jonah and the worm, Jonah and the wind. All of these were instrumental in changing Jonah's perspective so that he think like God about all people, so that he see, sees God's love for all peoples. And every one of these is just God's ordained action to recalibrate his heart from a selfish one to a selfless one. And so, church, I want to say to you with extreme confidence, God is orchestrating everything in your life to move your heart from where it currently is to where His is. There's no accident in your life. There's no situation, there's no encounter or conversation that isn't being used by God to move you to His heart. And my guess is that many of you probably feel, and it's just like I at times, we feel like we're encountering a plant, a worm or a wind, and they nudge us and they irritate us and we're glad and then we're sad and we're frustrated and we're happy. All these things are happening. What's God saying? What's God doing? There may be specific messages in those, but I can guarantee you this. All of them in general are designed to move you from a selfish heart to a selfless heart. From your immediate game plan to God's end game, that you would lean the ladder of your life and your resources and your time and your energies into the wall of God's end game, His gospel to all peoples, so His family's filled with all peoples. And God is orchestrating every single part of your life for you to live with that in view. Which means that God's got a plant, a worm, a storm, or a wind for you. I wonder what it is. Let me give you some things it could be. I speak, to these, I speak these to you pastorally, so they'll be more related to our church. Perhaps things God may be using as a worm or a plant or a storm or a wind to get you to think like Him Maybe it's your church leaders unapologetically asking for 100% of our members to be in. Can I air quote in? In other words, every single one of our members celebrating, growing, and serving. I.e., make the body a priority, give faithfully and regularly, serve somewhere on a consistent basis, uh, Read the Bible, pray, walk with God. Like, like this is what members do. There's a reason you became a member, right? If you didn't want to be a part of an entire flock flooding the mission of God, and that's what the, the vision of God's, that God's given us here, an entire flock flooding His mission, an environment that's ready to reproduce, multiplication matters, then you could have stayed a, just like a regular attender. You could have just kind of been the pop-in person. You could have. But can we be ultra clear and frank here? You did it. 
Most of you said, we want to be a member. Well, as a member, this is what's expected. This is what we do. We are all in for the mission of God. So when you hear your leaders call unapologetically for you to celebrate, grow, and serve, do you kind of push back at that? Like, well, who do you think you are? Well, we're just the leaders of the group you joined as a member. That's all we're doing. We're just obeying God's word. And saying, will you lean the ladder of your life against this wall that's from Genesis to Revelation? That's what we're all about. Here's what we do as believers. Can, can we just do that together? That might be your plant, your worm, or your wind. Maybe your storm. Maybe it's watching your kids move towards missions as a life vocation. It's not what you thought would happen. Maybe you thought they would get another kind of job and stay close. Maybe you thought they would do a different type of work. And it's not saying the other work is less. All work is sacred and has great impact for God's kingdom in many ways. But perhaps it's been hard for you to adjust to the fact that, well, my kids won't be close now. And perhaps my grandkids will be close. You have all these thoughts about what you thought would happen. And so this new agenda is hard. Admittedly, it is hard. Could that be your plant or your worm or your wind to move your heart closer to God's? Be able to let your kids be like arrows that you launch and they land in the camp of the enemy, the psalmist said. Maybe it's the sense that you should take next year's vacation fund and use it for next year's mission trip. Like, well, Todd, we always go to Los Cabos. You could skip a year. There's no sin in going to Los Cabos or San Antonio or Utah or Florida. All good things can be enjoyed, amen? But if you sense God's Spirit saying, hey, this year, take that money and spend it to visit one of our partners, one of the orphanages that we support, some of the ways that we're helping get the gospel in places where it has never even been. Like, like spend, invest your money there. Would you resist to the point like, ah, could that be your plant, your wind, your worm? That's all I'm saying. Just could it be? Maybe it's the graphic of the discipleship pathway that you see off and on. It'll be on a wall here soon. The circle that talks about belonging, connecting, growing, serving, and multiplying. We love those words except for the last one. Like that last one, Todd, like, like I've got to go around the discipleship pathway like more than once. Yeah, the whole idea is that as you go around it, you find someone else who needs to go around it and you say, hey, I'll go with you next time. Because multiplying matters. We're making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Maybe that's your nudge. Like, well, I just like, I'd as soon make the journey myself. No, the point is to make it yourself and then take somebody with you next time. So maybe that's your wind or your storm. What is God using to nudge you towards thinking like he thinks about all peoples? Here's what mine is. It's the continuing conversation I have to have with our leadership and some of our ministries about our own parking and seating needs. Now, there's not a whole lot of seating needs here right now. We're a little bit away from practical capacity. But as we think about what the future looks like, 830 is practically full. We have this consistent conversation about what do we next? Do we add parking and do we spend the money for that? My first reaction is I don't want to spend money on parking. I don't want to build anything else. 
We can fill up the upstairs, all these talks. And yet, in the last few weeks and months, I've realized something a little counterintuitive that even some of my fellow pastors probably wouldn't even agree with. But here's what I'm realizing and being convicted by. That our sending capacity is connected to our seating capacity. Now, I know it's more culturally cool to say, your church is known by its sending capacity, not its seating capacity. Everyone says what? Amen. And I agree with that in principle. But what about, what about this? What if you had nobody in the seats? How many would you send? The answer is none. So can I just share your, my heart with you as one of your pastors? I do want to fill this place up. And I'm praying that with our elders and deacons and staff, we can build a culture of multiplication and sending that adequately and with quality and integrity and authenticity and humility is the kind of environment where people would love to be sent from. Because I don't think everyone should go, by the way. I don't want to guilt you into saying, okay, I'll go. Some of you should not go. Some of you should stay and be really good rope holders for the few that say, I'll go down into the pit. In fact, the stats are, for every person who says, I'll go to the pit, being the, those unreached places where there is no gospel, but God wants His gospel to all people so His family is filled with all peoples. So those places have really good rope holders. We need 10 of those rope holders for every one that goes down. So I'm, I'll just be really frank with you here. My nudge in the last few weeks and months is this. Can we continue to mobilize our church to evangelize in our own city and care for those that we live close to, care for our neighborhoods, so that as people are saved and baptized and equipped, out of that crowd, God calls some to go. Yeah, I'm praying that we have some of the best youth ministries ever so that He calls your kids to go. Some of the best children's ministries in the city so that He calls your children to go some of the most fervent and zealous evangelism in the city, that you talk to your neighbors, you have them over for dinner, that you get to know your, your workmates. Why? So that those who don't know Christ will come to know Christ and they'll get discipled and equipped and who knows that God might be calling them to be the next one to go. And all goers, all sent ones need good senders. And there's one thing I'm focused on in this church and in my role as your lead pastor. I want to help lead the best sending environment there is. That's my goal. I think you know that. I've not been shy about it because I believe that's the heart of God. He's a missionary sending God. We should be a missionary sending church. But that doesn't mean there aren't people in the church. I believe we can do both. We can have a Equality, full, equipping, evangelizing church. And from within that church, there are those that God will call to go out, and then they're sent out in a quality way. Does that make sense, guys? Are you tracking with me? And for me, this has been the nudge. Todd, will you be willing to help craft and lead a quality sending environment and a culture where multiplication is, is on the radar all the time so that out of that environment we can continue to draw quality sent ones. I'm convinced more than ever our sending and seeding are connected.
That's my plant, my wind. Let me assure you of this, whatever we do, it's minimal compared to what God did. God sent his son and gave him up for us all so that in Christ we could be reconciled and restored. In every reverent, right sense of the word, God did the work. I kind of want to say God did the hardest work. I think God does all the work, okay? But in this reference of this sense, can you just work with me here? I mean, this is, we, we do minimal things. At the end of the day, we're unprofitable servants. We've only done what we've been asked to do. That's what the Gospels tell us. It's God who's the missionary proactive one who has sent Jesus, and Jesus gave his life for us. He lived and died as our mediator, and now we are on his mission to get that message to those who have yet to hear. And why is that our mission? Will you say it with me, church? The simple truth is this, that God's end game has always been and still is his gospel to all peoples and his family with all peoples. This is humanly hard. We do it because God loves all people and peoples. And he's constantly doing things in your life to orchestrate and move your heart to his heart. That's always going on. And this is why. Paul would summarize this in a single verse, and with this I close, in which he included Christ, Abraham, the Jews, and the Gentiles, all in a single verse. I love the way he kind of encapsulates what God did and is doing. It's Galatians 3, 13, and 14. So in closing, would you stand? Let's read this together. All of us standing. And then a kind of a summary way. Here's what God has been doing and is doing together, church. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. A thousand amens to this repeated promise, right, church? That the blessing of Abraham, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, would also bless other peoples. I'm so thankful the cross continues to cross all ethnic lines of division. And it brings people together with the unifying and saving message of God's love and forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus. This is the end game we're after. And this is what I pray we will forever pledge ourselves to. This task We'll pledge ourselves to this task by forever immersing ourselves in the steadfast love of God and by tethering ourselves to the greatest and fullest expression of that, which is the cross of Christ. On those two things, we stand and cling as we go to the nations with God's global gospel.